This morning, um, we begin a new study. We just finished up the book of Haggai as a church. And so today we're turning to the gospel of Luke. And so I wanna invite you to turn there in God's word to the gospel of Luke. And what we're gonna be doing over the next several years is journeying through the gospel of Luke. And you say, wow, it's gonna take that long. It's gonna take that long because we're gonna take some breaks along the way. So we're gonna spend some time in Luke and then we're gonna hop into another book of the Bible. And then we're gonna go back to Luke and then we're gonna hop into another book of the Bible. And then we're gonna go back to Luke Luke. And so it's going to take us a while, but my hope is, is that on a regular basis, we're always as a church family in a gospel, whether that be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is that we're always making our way from chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end of a gospel on a regular basis. So that that's just part of, of what we are studying as the people of God. And so God has led me to the gospel of Luke. And it's such a fitting time for us to begin this because Luke's narrative, like Matthew's, begins with the birth of Jesus and about the events that were going on leading up to that. And so I'm gonna just invite you right now to stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm actually gonna read chapter one, verses one through 25. And so hear the word of the Lord from the gospel of Luke, chapter one, verses one through 25. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as the priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. For there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people." How can I know this? Zachariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man and my, and my wife is well along in years as well. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. 
Meanwhile, the, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did not come out, he, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. We pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this meticulous record of what has happened, what has been fulfilled, so that we may have certainty of what we have been taught, what has been handed down, what was seen by eyewitnesses, and what we have believed in. So Lord, strengthen our faith all the more through your word, Please grace me, Father, with your Holy Spirit to be faithful to your word, to preach it in accordance with what you desire to speak to your people today. And would you do all of these things in such a way that only you receive the glory? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Luke starts off his gospel in a very clear way. And listen, he's writing to you and to me. You say, well, Chad, he actually is writing to Theophilus. You're right, he does address Theophilus right there in verses one through four when he speaks and he acknowledges that he's doing this. Now, all that we know of Theophilus is, is likely that he was someone who was helping to facilitate the writing of this work. In other words, he was putting up money personally in order to facilitate this gathering of all of these records, this writing on materials that would have been very expensive so that Luke could devote his time to just this task. Additionally, we think that Theophilus in some ways represents all believers of all time. That in, that in a way he's representing the church and therefore representing you and I today. So please, please, please receive this as it is intended as a message for you and for me today. We turn and we look and what we see Luke saying is at core this, this is true. This is true. Now listen, you and I through the years have come up with lots of things, especially during the Christmas holidays that aren't necessarily true, right? And I'll stop there for protection in the parking lot for many angry parents. But it's important for us to understand that there are things in creations that we have come up with that take away from maybe the truth that is the gospel. Luke is writing and wanting there to be absolute certainty about the things that are written here. These things are true. There's not one detail of what is written that is a metaphor. For example, we'll get over to it next week looking at the virgin birth that that Mary all of a sudden has a baby within her. Well, that's not just a metaphor for how God desires to be within us. Jesus was literally in Mary's womb. And so when we come to this couple today, we begin to see the impossible or seemingly impossible beginning to happen and preparing us for what will take place. But Luke knows that it's gonna be important and that our faith will be tested. That do we really believe this, that a man who lived 2,000 years ago was not just a man, but God with us, born of a virgin who was sinless, who then did something for you and me 2,000 years ago, and that was to die. That simply his death 
has taken away all of our sin so that we might have forgiveness and not only forgiveness of sins, but eternal life. A promise to always be with God in his kingdom, to always be counted righteous in his sight through the blood of Jesus. Do we believe these things? Luke knows that our faith will be tested. And so he wants us to have certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. But if you're willing to circle words in your Bible, there's two words that I want you to to circle in those first four verses that really give us the flavor of all that Luke is going to write. The first is this, it's found in verse one, it's the word fulfilled. If you wanna circle that word, you can, fulfilled. Many have undertaken to complete a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Notice, he doesn't just say the things that have happened among us. He's not just a historian. He's not just saying, well, you know, I figured we just want to remember these things and, and, and we just want a, a record of, of what took place. No, he uses a specific word to communicate something to you and to me, things that have been fulfilled. In other words, we can anticipate in Luke's writings and we receive exactly that, that there's going to be a lot of allusions and explicit quotations of Old Testament writings, both in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms that are going to find fulfillment over and over and over again about what Jesus has done. In other words, it's not just happenstance, it's not just perchance that Jesus does and says some of the exact things that he does, including his death on a cross, including his resurrection, and including his sinless life, God with us. All of these things were proclaimed by God through his law and through his prophets, and Jesus fulfills every word. So that word fulfilled is going to be a theme over all that Luke writes. But secondly, you can circle or underline the word certainty. Down in verse four, he says, it seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the first to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty, that is the truthfulness, that these things are absolutely reliable. So what, what can we expect then as we turn into Luke's gospel? We can expect a lot of detail. And can I tell you that Luke provides details that nobody else provides? As we begin to open up, notice how meticulous his record is. It's because these things aren't just made up. He's very careful with his dating and who was in charge and where things took place and the exact time and all of these things. Notice that he begins in the days of King Herod of Judea. And he identifies the division of which Zechariah was part of, Abijah's division. And he identifies even the lineage of Elizabeth herself, a, a, a daughter of Aaron. And so we see all of these meticulous details, not in order to make for a good story, but in order for you to know the certainty of the things of which you have been instructed. These things are true. This is true. Now, maybe you're here today and you're here as an honest, maybe skeptic. You say, I, I want to believe these things are true, but I really don't know if these things are true. I want to know if these things are true, but I really don't know. I want to invite you over the next several weeks, if you're an honest skeptic in this room, I want you to look 
carefully and to consider the record of what we read, even here today. What you would expect if these things were made up is hero after hero after hero, right? People only looking the best. Things only maybe turning out the best. But I want you to just think as a skeptic, as an honest skeptic, if these things were made up, wouldn't we expect more of a positive spin on key characters like Zachariah, who in this very story reveals what is so often true of you and me, weak, weak faith. I invite you to consider the truthfulness of these things for yourself, to read with us the gospel of Luke and to consider the explicit details that he provides at every turn of the story and consider for yourself if this is true. But second, what we see in this story as it emerges is this, that God is gracious, that God is gracious. This is the truth that really we need to know the certainty of and that you and I will spend a lifetime struggling to really believe is that God is as gracious as he says he is. We struggle with that. Whether you realize that or not, none of us have fully opened ourselves up to the love of God and truly believed it for its vastness, truly believed it for its depth, truly for, believed it for its forgiving power. None of us have fully mined the depths of his love for us, but even here in this passage, he is beginning to proclaim to his people through this baby to be born named John, that he is gracious. Let's look at it together. In the days of King Herod of Judea. Now that's important for us to know because Herod is set up as a king and he was, but that signals immediately that Israel is not in charge of her own land. She's occupied, occupied by Rome and someone else is in charge. And that's important for you and I to understand as these were a people who were desperate for the Lord's Messiah. They were desperate for the King of Kings to come and to set them free, that they may be fully God's people. So they're longing, they're waiting. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. Now for you and I to know just a little bit about the priesthood, the, the estimates from Daryl Bach and other scholars is that there was probably somewhere around 18,000 18,000 priests that were operating during these days. That, that, that's not a totality number. That's in that moment, there was probably 18,000 that were doing the work of the temple. This kind of gives you a vastness of what all was going on, of the responsibilities, all the things that they did. And then we have this one guy of Abijah, who was an insignificant kind of division named Zechariah, a guy that we don't know anything about before in his life and his wife, was a daughter of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And this is all we know, except for this, this description. Both were righteous in God's sight. Both were righteous in God's sight. Now here's what we know, they're up in age. Remember what Zachariah says, he says, how can I know this? Zachariah asked the angel in verse 18, for I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. In other words, neither one of us are spring chickens. And so, and, and we know how all this works. So they know where they are in the seasons of life. And yet the description of their life, just, just let this inspire you for just a moment. The description of their life 
that, that the full arc of their, of their existence, and they're getting toward the end of their years, is this, both were righteous in God's sight. Did you know that's what counts? God's sight? You and I, we live in a day when we so bad wanna be liked in each other's sight. We, we want to be seen as influencers and influential and leaders and all these things. I mean, we're just so desperate to look the right way in front of each other. But there's not much of an obsession in our culture today with how do we look in God's sight. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous in God's sight. Wow, they were living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. They took this seriously. Can I just encourage you to take this seriously? Be a man or woman, a student of the word. Follow the example. Luke is in very positive ways setting up a godly example for us to follow. That these, these are two obscure figures, but they were faithful. They were faithful in their lifetime. Can I just speak to those that are in their retirement years in the room? That are, that are getting toward the, toward the end of life, would you persist, please, in living a righteous life? Would you persist, please, in pursuing obedience to his word till you take your last breath? There is a generation watching you. It's my generation and those that you would consider your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. They are watching you to see if we retire, if we retire from obedience to the Lord. If, if this God thing is just something that happens for a season, or is it something that becomes greater and greater, the, the all-obsessing passion of your life? Please continue to pursue the Lord in every season of life. The Lord, the Lord sees. They continue on in this, but notice verse seven, all of a sudden you get to this statement but they had no children. Now we live in a culture today that maybe that doesn't land in the same way that it would have in the first century. Today, there's a lot of um, rhetoric that children are um, a disaster, that children will destroy a marriage, children are taking up too, many, too much natural resources. And so it's actually unwise to have children because you don't want you know, people using up the air and the, and the things like that, you know, that kind of stuff. When all along in God's word, God's word speaks about children as a blessing. And, and there's oftentimes in God's story of redemption and grace, there are these key moments, including Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, who is up in years, sounds familiar, and his wife is barren and can't have children. And that's the moment where God acts in a really, really specific way, making a promise that ultimately finds fulfillment, not in John, but in Jesus but all of this is meant to get our attention. This is all fitting a biblical template, a biblical paradigm of people in the Bible, women who were righteous in God's sight, but were barren and were begging God for a child. Maybe you're here today and that's your story. Can I just encourage you that God sees you and that you are in good company with incredible men and women of faith who have walked with the Lord and have struggled through childlessness. And 
you and I need to be more aware sometimes of the ways that we can ostracize and make difficult, even more difficult, the lives of those who are unable to have children. It's good for us to be aware. Notice what Elizabeth says in the very last verse of this passage. She says, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In other words, people were looking at them and there seemed to be an incontinuity between their seeming righteousness and this seeming punishment from God that they couldn't have children. In other words, even though they're being obedient to the word, even though they're righteous in God's sight, a lot of people were looking at them and saying, I wonder what they're hiding. I wonder what they're hiding. What's going on really below the surface? Because obviously if God was blessing them and they were doing what was good in God's sight, they'd have kids. But their entire life, they've had to persist in a faithfulness to God with the rejection and rebukes of people probably a lot of heartless comments made their way to then get to this moment where an angel appears. When his division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God and it happened, I like his choice of words there, it happened that he was chosen by Lot. Just know that nothing just happens. God, God selected this moment, this exact moment for Zachariah to enter into this specific place and likely the only time that he will have ever been selected to do this. One biblical scholar said this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. That's why there was the casting of lots. That's why it was such a big deal. That's why there's all the detail right here is that this was an appointed moment for Zachariah to finally be in the presence of God and to offer incense before the Lord, which rises is, is basically like the prayers of the people. In other words, that's why Luke records that everybody was gathered outside. You gotta get the picture. It'd be like if none of you were allowed in this room, but you all had to wait outside in the foyer while I alone, would come into this place and there'd be implements, you know, certain things that were in the room and I would come before God while you were praying in the foyer, all of you facing this way toward the cross or something like that. And I, representative of you, in the incense, representative of your prayers, offer them to God to rise as a, as a fragrant offering before him. That's the picture. Everybody's out there waiting, everybody's gathered. All of the priests are engaged. All of these things are going on. And then in a moment, Zachariah's life is changed forever. And here we are 2000 years later, reading about the exact events that took place in this moment. God is gracious. And at that hour, the incense of the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Verse 10, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right of the altar of incense. The right hand side was considerable, was considered the favorable side. Okay, so already we're just seeing indications that this is good. This moment is good. But then notice when Zachariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Now listen, you've got to understand this. This was terror like you watching Friday the 13th, okay? I mean, this was not just like, oh, I didn't see you there. You know, like not that kind of like startle, but absolute terror. Like, is this it for me? Uh, is my life over in this moment because there is an angelic being before me and I am about to die. We see that over and over and over again in the scriptures. Then when people meet the other world, the, the reality that we don't see all of a sudden is in the reality we do see, they are terrified. And so he's terrified in this moment. He thinks this could be my last. 
And yet what Luke has already established is he's righteous in God's sight. So this isn't a punishment moment. And therefore the angel says, but the angel said, do not be afraid, Zachariah, because your prayer has been heard. Now, this is one where we're like, well, what did he pray? Well, obvious from the answer right here in the very next verse, he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. There seems to be the assumption that he had prayed to have children. Now, in this moment, at his age, that may be very much a past tense prayer. In other words, he may have prayed and prayed and prayed, but then maybe gotten to the place where he said, God, I mean, if you want us to have a child, we will. We don't know exactly the nature of that prayer, but we do know that in this moment, when he's representing the people at the instance of prayer, that they are supposed to be offering a prayer on behalf of Israel, of all the people, for salvation to come. And so that's important for us to understand is that there's a a dual nature to this prayer moment for Zechariah. He's praying for all the people, but there's also the personal. Isn't that how it is for you and me? that we pray for big things like for the church, capital C, but there's also really, really, really important personal things going on at all times. God sees both and God is gracious to both in the same moment. And he says to him, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. Do you wanna know what John means? The name John means that Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. That's what his name means. This baby to be born is himself wearing the the sign as a name. God is gracious. God is gracious. Think about how significant that is, that he is having to proclaim, even with his own name, that God is gracious. God is so gracious that he would give his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You need someone to lead the way in reminding everyone just how gracious God is. That he would give his only precious son as the lamb to take away the sins of the world. As John would later proclaim when he sees Jesus as an adult. It's important for us to understand that God in every way possible, even down to the name of this baby, is telling everybody, I am gracious. I'm gracious. That's my nature. I'm a gracious God. I forgive. I love when people don't deserve love. I'm just, but I'm merciful. I am gracious. God is proclaiming. There will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. Now, what's the big deal there? Is this, you know, supposed to steer us in a direction of thinking that that wine and beer are explicitly evil. Instead, what's being hearkened back to is that this one is set apart from birth to be filled with nothing other than the Holy Spirit. In fact, then all of a sudden, admonitions that we find from Paul where he says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It all of a sudden makes a little bit more sense that there is this significant setting apart of John, even from birth, that even at weddings and other events, that he's gonna abstain from the pleasures of this life in order to be fully devoted to God, filled with his spirit in order to proclaim this message, even with his life, that God is gracious, therefore repent and believe. 
He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Now, this was not the norm. When we look back at the Old Testament, people would be filled with the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit would leave that person. Often when the Holy Spirit would fill that person, they would prophesy in that very moment, but then the prophecies would end because the Holy Spirit has taken away. Well, you and I now, as the people of God, we are filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that he doesn't leave, that, that we have received the Holy Spirit who at times can be quenched because of our lack of faith and our sinfulness, but he never leaves us or forsakes us. This is the promise of Christ made good of by the Holy Spirit. But in this moment before the cross of Christ and before the coming of the Holy Spirit that Luke will record in the beginning of the book of Acts, we see this one set apart and filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. I mean, even from his mother's womb. What we'll see evidence of this is when we turn over and we see when Mary comes pregnant with Jesus, what happens? John leaps in the womb. I mean, literally does a somersault inside of mom because the Holy Spirit of God is rejoicing in the presence of Christ the Son. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedience of the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Did you know that it's God's grace that prepares people for Christ? It's God's grace that prepares people for Christ. It's God's grace every time the gospel is proclaimed. It's God's grace that's at work that causes any sinner to be convicted of sin by his kindness that they might lead them, they might be led into repentance. It's always God's grace that gets the glory. It's always his love that should be the song that we sing. And so what we see here is that God is gracious but he's gracious in a moment that the people were desperate to hear from God. You see, the reality is that they have gone through a long famine of God speaking. In fact, if you will, for just a moment, hold your place in Luke. And if you'll just turn over to the very last page of the Old Testament, I want us to hear from Malachi, Malachi chapter four to better understand the significance of the birth of this specific kid and why it is that Luke is going into all this detail about this baby to be born because it was Malachi who was speaking and then as the prophet of God and then we reach this what's called 400 years of silence where it seems as though God has abandoned his people and he's not speaking and yet God is faithful to his promise. But notice what he says as a final warning. In chapter four, verse four of Malachi, we read this, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and the ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Do you see the similarity of what's spoken of about John and his role? That he will be one who comes and he helps restore this relationship. Can I just tell you that when the gospel is at work, there's both the horizontal dimension and the vertical that takes place in reconciliation. There's the restoration of our relationships with one another. There's also the restoration of relationship with God as father. The hearts of children being turned to their fathers and fathers to their children, restored human relationships. And I know that there are parents in this room right now 
who, would long, who are longing for nothing more than a restored relationship with a child. Especially those that are parenting adult children who maybe entered into an incredibly difficult season where the relationship has been torn apart. I want you to know that the power of the gospel is sufficient to restore any relationship because it can restore our relationship to God as Father and it is powerful enough to restore any human relationship. And that's what God is proclaiming. This God of grace through this prophet John, he is turning the hearts back. That's what his ministry is going to look like. But in this moment, all of a sudden, where Luke is anchoring us to this is true and we're seeing that God is gracious even in the fulfillment and the reactivation of a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah, this powerful prophet who came and defeated the, the, the prophets of Baal and all these things that took place during the original Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, this incredible prophecy, this prophecy giver is going to come. And in this moment of hearing all of this good news of God's grace, we all of a sudden see that our faith is weak. You see, I see my faith right here on this page with Elijah, I mean, with Zechariah. How can I know this? It's his response. You wanna know that basically? Can I see a sign? Can I see a sign? What's a sign that this is, is this actually gonna happen? And then he tells him, he says, because you know, I'm old. My wife, I'm not saying she's old, but she's up in years. He's careful there. How can I know this? Can you show me a sign? And can, you, can I tell you that right out of the gate, even with Zechariah, that Luke is helping us to understand that it is gonna be a repeat of this request, person after person, that, well, well what's a sign that this is true? During Jesus's ministry, Jesus, the son of God is before people. He's healing, he's, he's creating food out of nowhere. I mean, like all of these things, he's raising the dead. And they're gonna say, well, can you show me a sign? I mean, think about Zachariah's moment. What, more, what additional sign do you need that you have an angel in front of you in this sacred place where certainly this is only God communicating in his temple? What more of a sign do you need than the words spoken by God's messenger? What more do we need than the words spoken by God's messengers to us. What more do we need than God's word? Brothers and sisters, for hundreds and thousands of years, people have said, I need more than this. I, I need more than what he said. I, I need to see. Our faith is weak. Our faith is weak. But can I tell you, that's exactly where God's grace is most often, most shiningly on display. You see, you would have expected Zechariah to be this like, absolutely, yes, I'm a righteous man. I've obeyed all your ways. Of course, this is my moment to receive now the blessing of a son. And of course, he would be great. We're of great pedigree, my wife and I. And so, of course, no, weak faith. And that is gonna be the story of Israel. That's the story of us is do we really believe this stuff? Do we really believe what's spoken? Do we really believe what's written? If we did, if we did, then things would look a lot more like Mary than like Zachariah in this moment. 
The angel answered him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. Because you didn't believe my words. I think that's one of the hardest things, right? is when you and I meet a moment that we really sense God is calling us to do something, that God has spoken something very clearly in his word that we know we need to do, that we've not been doing, that we need to do, and then we just, we don't do it. We, we just demonstrate with our actions. We, we really don't believe it, and we shrink away. You know, that's the very moment when, with our weakness, we begin to doubt God's grace. Is it sufficient for this weak sinner? Is it sufficient for this weak believer? This one who, who wants to have strong faith but feels so weak? Listen to Gabriel's final words in that sentence, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Your weak faith is no match for God's faithfulness. Your weak faith, my weak faith is no match for God's faithfulness. God said, I'm gonna do this. But Zachariah suffers a consequence. He can't speak or hear. You see, we, we turn over to verse 62 in chapter one and they're having a motion to him to get his attention. So we know that he can't speak and he can't hear. This is his penalty. And think about that penalty. It's so that the very last words he heard were the words that God spoke to him and then he heard nothing else. He had to just let those words roll around in his mind and, and question, why didn't I believe? Why didn't I believe? Why didn't I believe these things? Instead, he should have believed that God's promise is sure. And that's what we're left with here in this text today is that God's promise is sure, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. We're, we're back to the scene, amazed that he stayed so long. Usually when people went in and they didn't come out, it was because things didn't go well. Um, that they had gone in and maybe they had unconfessed sin or things weren't okay and they were dead. I mean, in fact, even there were times where they would tie a rope on somebody's legs, they could pull them back out. You know, like we know that some of these things took place. And even though he's not in the holy of holies, he's in the holy place, there's still this thought of like, man, this can't be good. This is taking a while. And then he comes out but he can't speak and they realize he'd seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them, but he remained speechless. And when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. This is where you and I, we think that God only does what we have faith for him to do. That's how you and I think. And that causes us to not really believe and to lean into a life where we just depend on his grace. That his grace his grace is at work regardless of our weak faith. You say, well, Chad, are you saying we, we don't need to have faith? Absolutely not. There's penalty and, and difficulty. Zacharias suffered under speechlessness and, and not being able to hear for nine months. It, there was a great penalty to this in his life. But brothers and sisters, it didn't stop the plan of God. God is not saying, man, if I just had more faithful people, I could do so much more. I just, I, gosh, I would do so much good in the world. Ah, but nobody believes in me. And then he just folds his arm and says, I guess I can't do anything. No, God is not limited by you. Amen. No, praise God. God is not limited by us. So let me ask you, 
then why don't you have faith in him? Why don't you depend more on his grace since your faithlessness can't stop him? Why not just cast yourself upon him? Throw yourself at his mercies. Praise him daily that he's faithful even when your faith is small. Thank him that his grace to you was undeserved like it was in Zachariah's life. God knew before time began that Zachariah in this moment would not believe, that he would doubt. And yet God chose him to be the recipient of his specific grace in this way. Brothers and sisters, that is a God of grace. Where's your attention? Is it on Zachariah? Where's your attention? Is it on Elizabeth? Where's your attention? Is it on John? Your attention is supposed to be on the God of grace. That's the significance of John's name. That's the significance of this whole story. For you that are the skeptic maybe here today and wanting to believe, did this story show just how awesome Zachariah was? Not at all. It showed a a weak faith, but an incredibly gracious God who is faithful to his plan and his promise that he is fulfilling with great certainty in these moments. But all of this, brothers and sisters, is moving us, is moving us towards something that is far greater than Christmas. You see, you and I, we, we celebrate this moment because it reminds us that he has come and therefore should assure us that he will come again. But we are not meant to be Christians who stop with Christmas, who say, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And that's it. No. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This one who's coming that John is going to be a prophet in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for, this one is coming to do something, not just be born, not just like show off and do some miracles, but he's coming ultimately to do something for you and for me that we desperately needed. You see, the Bible teaches that the consequence for your sin and for mine, that ultimately the consequence for Zachariah's faithlessness and your faithlessness and mine is death. So if Jesus was going to come into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, then he was gonna have to do something for you and me to pay the price for our sin to save us. And that's exactly what he did. When you came in today, you should have received a little cup and, and that looks like this. Uh, if you didn't receive one and are a believer here today, we invite you to consider and to participate in this way. If you're here, maybe as that honest skeptic, if you need one of these, you can lift your hand and our deacons will get that to you. But if you're here today and you say, hey, I really don't know if I believe this gospel, I just want you to stop for a moment, not participate by eating and drinking this, but to consider what these things mean that what these things are pointing to is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks. How How God took on flesh among us, but he did so not just to show that he could, but to do something that only he could do. And that was to die for you and for me. You see, the body, the Bible speaks of in very clear terms about the meaning of these things. In 1 Corinthians 11, 
Paul, who's writing to an early church, he communicates to them. He says, for I received from the Lord, that is the Lord God, what I passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. So I invite you to peel back that later and take the bread. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of Christ. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So take in remembrance of Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. All of this that Luke is preparing us for is the coming of Jesus. But then what Luke devotes himself to in Acts is helping us to understand what it looks like to be devoted to his coming again. Can I just tell you, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus and why he came, past tense, that he came to die for your sins, then today is the day where God desires to be gracious to you. That's what he desires. God sent his one and only son. He even sent a prophet named John to prepare people so that they would understand this good news that is being proclaimed to you today, that Jesus has died for your sins. He was buried and resurrected on the third day with the promise that all of those who believe in him will likewise experience his death, burial, and his resurrection to new life. That's why we do baptism the way we do is to celebrate this good news of union with Christ into new life. And that new life from that gracious God is available to you today. I'm gonna be standing right here. And if that's what you need more than anything, this Christmas season is the true root, the true reason of why God gave his son. Then I invite you to come and to spend time with me in this moment to allow me to share with you the good news of Jesus and how you can be born again. Let's all stand together. We're gonna sing a song of response, a song of worship where we worship God for the gift of his son, but you today, please respond in faith to this gospel of hope.